The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. So this morning we're reading from Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sat and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, at an earlier stage in my life, I used to describe myself as naively optimistic and easily disappointed. All right. As I've grown older and hopefully matured a little bit, I'm still a little bit naively optimistic. But hopefully, I've, I, I think I've gotten to the place, and I don't think this is cynicism, maybe it is, uh, where I'm less easily disappointed. It's a deadly thing to be overly optimistic and easily disappointed, right? It means you have extremely high, like great, big expectations that are very often not fulfilled, right? In our passage today, Matthew tells us about some of his expectations, which are not naively optimistic. They were biblically optimistic. He tells us of his biblical expectations for the Messiah, the coming one, the, the one that Israel had been waiting for, longing for, expecting, hoping for, for generations. Matthew tells us of his biblical expectations, and he relates them all to Jesus, and he lets us know he's not disappointed. In fact, what we learn from Matthew in this text is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. And therefore, we're to receive him. He's the fulfillment. This is a favorite word of of Matthew's, actually, in these opening chapters. He uses it three times in our text today. He's used it explicitly and implicitly in chapters 1 and 2, as he's been telling us the story of Jesus' birth. 
Chapter 1 began with the genealogy where Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David, a, a king. And implicit there is the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to David so many years before in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would establish the throne of David forever. Matthew also records in chapter 1 the miraculous conception of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, telling us explicitly that all this took place to fulfill, there's our word, what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Last week, then, we were looking at the first half of chapter 2. After Jesus was born and the wise men came looking for him, Matthew cites the Old Testament prophet Micah, who wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The word fulfill isn't explicitly used here, but the point is there implicitly. Jesus is the ruler from Bethlehem who has come to shepherd God's people. See, Matthew and his fellow Jews, they, they had very high, very optimistic expectations for the Messiah. And Matthew wants to let us know Jesus fulfills them all. That's what brings us to our text today, which records Jesus' flight to Egypt. And then Herod, when he was going on this rampage, and then he returns from Egypt, eventually settling in Nazareth. Let's look at this together again. Sandy just read it, but we're going to look at it again. I want it loaded up into our minds. I'm in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. If you're following along, hopefully, in your copy of God's Word, here's what we read one more time. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. That's the story. Just the facts, ma'am. That's the story. That's the details. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, warned him of Herod, tells him to you know, get out of Israel, go to Egypt. They do. Herod sends out a hit on all the young boys to and under in an effort to murder the alleged king who was a threat to his rule and reign. This wasn't a nationwide genocide. It was a targeted assault. Okay, the, the area of the, the city of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas was not massively populated. Probably 10 to 30 children or so, most scholars think, were killed, murdered by Herod's decree. Eventually, Herod dies. The angel of the Lord gives Joseph the all clear. Joseph and Mary return to the land of Israel, settling in Nazareth out of fear of Herod's son, 
who was ruling in the region of Judea. Again, that's the story, the true story. That's the data. But it's not exactly how Matthew tells us the story, is it? In fact, if you were following along in your copy of God's Word, which I hope you were, you've noticed I've skipped some very key verses that Sandy read. Some very key verses that cite directly or indirectly the Old Testament Scriptures. Old Testament Scriptures that Matthew explicitly states are fulfilled by Jesus. This whole passage of Scripture actually is organized around these three fulfillments that Matthew is drawing our attention to. Now that word fulfill, when we think about it, when we're reading the Bible, we tend to think in terms of prediction and then like the making good of on that prediction. Something in the future, it's been fulfilled, fulfills the prediction. One way to illustrate that is if I pretend that I have you know, special knowledge on the outcome of a football game this afternoon or something. And I, I tell you that I'm predicting that team A is going to win and team A does in fact go on and win. We would say that my prediction has been fulfilled. That's our most common way of thinking of something being fulfilled. And yet in the Bible, the, the verb fulfill has a broader meaning. It has a, a, a broader significance than a mere one-to-one prediction and making good on said prediction. The theological term that I'm dancing around is typology. It's a a literary device used to say that this, in the here and now, is like that from of old. Typology compares people or events or even objects, but more importantly, there's a, a progression, an escalation in the comparison. Where the final person or event, the this in the here and now, is escalated in value in some way from the original point of the comparison, the that from of old. Another way to say it is the original person or the original event is a type. That's where the name typology comes from. It's a a type or a pattern, a shadow that somehow points forward to an ultimate expression of itself. Some easy ones, because the ones in our text are actually not that easy. (laughs) Some easy ones, Moses, in the Old Testament, was an important prophet that anticipates the ultimate prophet, Jesus. David was a, a good king in the Old Testament that anticipates our ultimate king, Jesus. Or think of the, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They anticipate the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the new. Now listen, books are written on this stuff, okay? And we got kids in the room this morning, you know? I'm pretty sure you want to go home and, you know, take a nap or something before Christmas Eve service tonight. And so I'm just going to give a a super high-level view of these three fulfillments that Matthew points out here today, and then we'll apply Matthew's message to ourselves first. When Matthew is telling of Joseph and Mary taking Jesus down into Egypt and then bringing him back up, he, he says in the second half of verse 15, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. See, Matthew here is looking at Jesus and he's recalling the Exodus. He's saying, picture the Exodus from the Old Testament Now picture Jesus. 
notice anything? And then he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea here in Hosea, uh, Hosea 11 verse 1. One thing else to, to note is that when a New Testament author cites an Old Testament author, they, they're drawing on the fuller context of that Old Testament citation as well, sucking it all in, so to say. Well, back in Hosea, the context is that Hosea is reflecting on God's love for Israel, his son, and how God so loved his son and rescued his son from slavery. That's what Hosea is talking about. But then Hosea goes on in the next six verses of Hosea chapter 11. This is the broader context. And he goes on to lament how Israel wandered astray and would eventually return back into enslavement in exile. But that's not the last word of Hosea 11. Hosea 11 ends describing beautifully how God can never fully give up his people. And how he'll one day bring them back from that exile. One day he will redeem them again. Hosea, you see, looks forward to a saving visitation of the Lord. And Matthew is telling us in an even greater, even escalated way, looking at Jesus, this is like that. Jesus is the one who has come to redeem He's the embodiment of the hope. He's God's son. Israel going down into slavery in Egypt and being brought back out by God. It's a type. It points forward to Jesus. The fact that Jesus went down into Egypt and was brought back up all by the orchestration of God is to draw our minds to God delivering his people. As the son, he embodies the hope. But he's more than the embodiment of the hope. He's also the fulfillment of the hope. It's actually through him. It's through Jesus that redemption has come. Matthew's point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. The next citation comes in verse 17. After Matthew tells us of Herod becoming furious and sending and killing all the toddler boys of the area, he tells us again in verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is probably the most, one of the most fascinating of the three to me here. The citation is from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Now, Rachel, back in Jeremiah when he's writing, Rachel is being personified as the mother of Israel. Ramah is likely the town where Rachel was buried all the way back in Genesis 35. It was also a town that God's people were marched through when they were carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And so what Jeremiah is envisioning here in Jeremiah 31 is Rachel, the personified mother of Israel, weeping from her grave over her children as they walked off into captivity before her very eyes. But here's the marvelous thing about Jeremiah 31 verse 15. It is one line of sorrow in the midst of a chapter of hope. The rest of the chapter, if you go read Jeremiah 31, on both sides of verse 15, which Matthew quote, it's all about hope. And how despite the tears, 
the exiles will return. And Matthew is therefore saying, look at the weeping moms in Bethlehem today, whose young toddler boys have been slaughtered by Herod. Look at them. And now, look at Jeremiah's vision of Rachel weeping. Notice anything. This, in the here and now, is like that from of old. Yes, there is weeping, but the weeping will soon be replaced with hope. In fact, Jeremiah 31, verse 16, the Lord says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for they shall come back from the land of the enemy. You see it? The, the tears in, Jer- in Jeremiah's day point forward in an escalated way to the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. But just like in Jeremiah's day, and the context, the point in Matthew's day is that the exile is over. The heir to David's throne has come. The true son of God has arrived. It's the new reign of a new king under a new covenant. God's people are being restored. God's kingdom is being established. No more tears. The Messiah has come. Matthew is telling us through all this extensive work and knowledge that he has of the Old Testament scriptures for the Jewish people, he is telling us Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. And then the last one of these citations comes in verse 23. It's trickier because it's actually not a specific citation. After Herod dies and the angel of the Lord gives the all clear, Joseph and Mary return to the land of Israel and settle in Nazareth, their hometown. Matthew writes in verse 23, it went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now again, what makes this really complex is there's no specific place in the Old Testament that we're told the Messiah would be from Nazareth or called a Nazarene. But it's actually in that complexity that we see the fullness of this complex illusion. Matthew here is pulling together multiple ideas all at once. From what I've been able to discern from just studying the passage, there's at least three ideas he's pulling together here. First, in Hebrew, the, the word for branch is netzer. And multiple Old Testament prophets apply this title to the Messiah. It's the Old Testament word for branch. Jeremiah does it, Zechariah does it, and possibly most famously, Isaiah does it when he writes in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, and that's there. From his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and mind, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's a messianic passage we understand that points forward to Jesus. It's speculated that the town of Nazareth was actually named after this passage. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Nazareth was originally settled by a remnant of Israel after the exile. We can maybe even picture a sign outside of Nazareth that says, Welcome to Nazareth, home of the branch. Right? Jesus then, by being from Nazareth, 
Nesser, Eth, the city of the branch. Matthew is telling us Jesus is the branch. He's the branch. He's the Messiah. Secondly, if you know anything about Nazareth, you know it was a despised place. Uh, one of Jesus' own disciples, I think it's, I think it's Nathaniel, right, in the, in, the, in the New Testament, when he's first told that they had found the Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, what does the disciple respond? He, he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This was Matthew's way of saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah himself would be despised, comparable into the way that the very town of Nazareth was despised at the time of Jesus. Perhaps most famously, we should think of Isaiah again, who wrote of the Messiah that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So you've got to bear in mind here that Matthew is writing all of this after Jesus' death, after his burial, his resurrection, writing to his fellow Jews to let them know that despite the fact that Jesus was rejected by man and despised and crucified, or to use more of Isaiah's language, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, despite all of that, he is in fact the Messiah. In fact, those things about him actually point to the truth itself when we understand what was spoken by the prophets. And then there's one last aspect to Jesus being from Nazareth that we must see. Verse 22 uh, points out that Nazareth is located where? In the region of Galilee. Galilee was a region that was, had a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. Matthew calls it Galilee of the Gentiles in chapter 4. It was a place of, it was a place of ethnic diversity. And unlike our world, where we might view that as a positive thing, with multiple people and, and different ethnicities living t- together in one place. Back then, that was not viewed as a good thing. It was looked down upon. In fact, it's part of why Nazareth was despised. It was not the place from which, humanly speaking, anyone was looking for the Jewish Messiah to come from. That's why Nathaniel asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? He was looking for a Jewish Messiah and did not expect it to come from there. Not so fast, Matthew's telling us. Think about the prophets. Think about the vision they had for the Davidic king ruling not just the Jews, but all nations. Think back even to Isaiah 11 again and how in that day this root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Think of how as we were introduced in chapter 1 the son of David is also called the son of Abraham that the father of nations through whom all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And how at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus will tell his disciples to go and make more disciples of whom? All the nations. 
And how all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He's king. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one all the prophets ultimately pointed forward to. He's the one that fulfills all that they were looking for in the Messiah. He's the one that they had all been waiting for, longing for, hoping for. He is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. And even more, he's the fulfillment of the hope of the nations. Are you starting to see why Matthew didn't just give us the facts? Why is, why is he recounting the events of Jesus' birth in his early years in this way? He does it this way because he wants the reader, he wants you to understand exactly who Jesus is. He wants you to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of the world. And he wants you to receive him. Matthew wrote all this down. He wrote it all out as an evangelistic tool aimed at his fellow Jews. It says to them, this is your long-awaited Messiah. He's come. But then also, Matthew wants to communicate that Jesus came for all. He came for the nations. An emphasis that we find over and over again throughout his gospel. He came for everyone Every nation, every neighbor, he came for now and every other now, after that now, including this now. The whole big point of it boils down to this. Receive him. Receive him. Don't be fooled. Christmas is about receiving. (laughs) You heard me, right? Some of your parents are like, that's not what I told my kids. That's not what I told them. All right, kids in the room, listen up. Uh, don't be fooled. I know your parents probably remind you, or will tomorrow, it's more blessed to, to give than to receive. And in general, that's true. Jesus taught us that, actually. That's true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Unless we're talking about receiving Jesus. There is no greater blessing than receiving Jesus. And this is what Christmas is about. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian yet. It's not more blessed to give than to receive Jesus. You can be a great person in the eyes of the world. You can be wealthy, generous, give the best, most incredible gifts. You can be praised and thanked for Christmas. Oh, wow, he's so amazing. Look what he got me. Everyone can think you're wonderful. But if you don't have Jesus, it's all for naught. I just want to exhort you this morning very plainly to receive him. Whether you're 8 or 88, receive him. Today, not on the grounds of feelings, not on the the grounds of some emotional Christmas high. That's certainly not what Matthew's trying to do. He's seeking to persuade on the objective facts that this Jesus has come and fulfills all the Old Testament hopes of Israel. He meets all the expectations of our biblical optimism, and he does not disappoint. Receive him by faith. 
You can even pray and do that right now. If you never have before, you can pray, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like, I believe that you have come for me and lived for me and died for me and rose for me. And I trust in you for the forgiveness of all my sins. I receive you, Jesus. This is the miraculous piece of Christianity, right? If you pray that prayer by genuine faith, you're a Christian. Merry Christmas. You you can go back to school or family or work. Someone asks you, what did you get for Christmas this year? Jesus. I got saved. And then you can tell them about Jesus too. It's the gift that keeps giving. Now what if you've already received Jesus? Many of you, most have. What if you received him years ago? Does this passage say anything to you? Yeah, it does. In Matthew, uh, let me put it to you this way. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist, when he's in prison, we'll meet John the Baptist next week. But in chapter 11, he's in prison. Perhaps discouraged. Perhaps disillusioned. Doubting, even. And he sent word to Jesus. John the Baptist sent word to Jesus by his disciples, and he said, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? It's a very apt question, isn't it? As a Christian, when, when you get discouraged in your life, <laughs> um, there's all kinds of things that can do that. When you, get, when you grow disillusioned, even when you doubt, when, when you wonder, man, like, is this all really real? Is it? Like when you catch yourself just going through the Christmas motions, when you say, oh, okay, yeah, Jesus, I, he came for me, I trust in him, my sins are forgiven, but man, this life, this world, this year that I've had, he said he's coming back, he said he's going to restore all things, he said he's going to raise the dead and, and you know, give us new bodies and pour out his peace and satisfy my soul and wipe away all my tears, but is it real? I mean, is he the one who is to come? Is he really the answer? Or should I look for another? Should I look for another? How does Jesus answer that in chapter 11? Do you know? What does he do? I'll tell you what he does. He does the same thing that Matthew does in our text in chapter 2. He points back to how Jesus... How he himself is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. Jesus answered him, go and tell John back there in prison what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. That's Isaiah 29 verse 18 and 35 verse 5. And the lame walk. That's Isaiah 35 verse 6. The lepers are cleansed, Isaiah 53, verse 4. The deaf hear, Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. And again, 35, 5. The dead are raised up, Isaiah 26, 18 and 19. And the poor have good news preached to them, Isaiah 61, verse 1. Are you the one who is to come? 
I am, Jesus says. I am the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. Receive me. So when you're discouraged, Christian, or disillusioned, even at Christmas time, knowing, I know that's a very common thing for us. Even when you doubt, would you hear the word of God in places like Matthew chapter 2 and be reminded, be encouraged that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you most deeply hope for? Receive him. Not for salvation. That, that happened already if you're a Christian. But receive him again and again for strengthening, for perseverance, for pressing on. He's with you. He's Emmanuel. Receive him over and over in your life. And then be reminded that there's an even fuller fulfillment that we yet await. His return. His second advent. It's, it's not naive optimism. It's biblical optimism. Biblical optimism that is built upon the same word of God that promised and records his first coming also promises his second. And so live your life as one who has received Jesus, as one who continues to receive Jesus moment by moment, living with hope, living with sky-high biblical optimism for when he comes again. He will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all of our Christmas time celebrations and services and scriptures that teach us and remind us he really is the fulfillment of the hope of the world and we're to receive him. Spirit of God, would he be received here today for some for the first time, for the rest, again and again, moment by moment, strengthen us in our hope the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.